Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you get your Raycon earbuds? I sure did. It's important for me to have headphones that I like to wear. Yeah. And my Raycon earbuds, I can hear it all. I got mine too. I got one set of black, one set of white. Oliver immediately left with his. I've got a 14-year-old. He tuned me out so immediately, so happily that I was vacuuming (laughs) and he did not turn around. I was really impressed with the sound quality. They look better and they sound better than ever. They fit incredibly well. They come with all these little attachment thingies. What do you call those little things? The optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. They're so comfortable that one of my kids, Johnny, this is a quote from Johnny about the Raycon earbuds. Quote, they're good. Minuscule case. They do sound good and feel good in your ear. End quote. You cannot get higher praise. That kid will not put something that does not feel good in his ear. It's no wonder Raycon's everyday earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. That's a lot. They seem perfect for a workout because they don't fall out of your ear. No, they do not fall out of your ears. And I'm a spaz. I want you to know this. I do not have a graceful bone in my body. They just stay put and they're fantastic. I love them. Right now, Quitters listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash quitters. That's buyraycon.com slash quitters to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash quitters. I'm Julie Bowen. This is not a paid endorsement, but given the situation in the Ukraine, if you have an extra dollar to give to the Ukrainian Red Cross or any organization that supports the freedom of the Ukrainian people, that would be great. I did it. I want our podcast to be thought-provoking and interesting. And while we want to be a thoughtful distraction, we can't pretend it's not happening. So give. Welcome to Quitters. I'm Julie Bowen. I'm Chad Sanders. And this week we had in studio, which is such a rare delight, my fake brother, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. He did. He told us a lot. (laughs) I mean, he took us back to childhood. He told us about his coming out story and he told us about stealing gay porn. Stay tuned for that one because it's really good. He's so funny and you kind of have to listen for the undertone of how painful a lot of that must have been for him. He has such a light touch with his own coming out story. And then he took a great turn and took us down the road of one of his big quits, bailing on one huge project to take a chance on another and how that all worked out. I was just delighted to see him. I mean, you two have obviously such a rapport. You almost have the shorthand of actual siblings. I know. And this was a tough one for me because how do I sit at the table with these two? They are so connected. And you were a little emotional also to see your friend. Listen, COVID's been so long and hard for everyone. And just to contextualize, we finished Modern Family and approximately three weeks later, the entire world shut down for COVID. So it was a big double whammy for me and for Jesse and for all of my castmates that we went from, wow, we had this 11-year run of having a fake family that we all loved and saw every day to that's gone and so is everything else. Jesse Tyler Ferguson has achieved everything. He has a beautiful husband, a beautiful son. He is on Broadway right now in Take Me Out. To me, he's achieved everything, but there's still more and there are more ways that he wants to push himself. And I think that's a really interesting conversation. Me too. So here it is, Jesse Tyler Ferguson.
Are these different? Are these the same? Okay. <laughs> you can see how clueless I am. You guys want to let me know uh, how you're sounding? Am I, should I be closer to the mic? Uh, six to 12 inches. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> six, so specific. Six to 12 inches. I'm going to be eight. That's fine. Maintain eight. You can maintain a hard eight the whole time. You're uh -huh. like, ha, 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 ha. Okay, <laughs> Okay, I, I heard it. Yeah, you heard it. It but. took me a minute to hear it, but I heard it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesse, Chad wrote an amazing book called Black Magic, which is about how if you can survive the trauma of being black in America, you can survive anything and how you can turn that into a positive. But then Chad had this idea to do a podcast. So the book that I wrote is a lot and so much of my life right now is about quitting the corporate world. I used to work at Google for four years and... I hated it, mostly just trying to make white people like me so I could get promoted. Right. And I wrote about that a lot in my book. And the message saying fuck it and going and trying to do something else, I think, resonates with people, mm -hmm. especially now. I quit a marriage. Yes. We've had these conversations with several different people. Ultimately, we've been really surprised that quitting one thing usually leads to kind of this spiral effect of how it affects the rest of your life. It almost never becomes about the first thing. Right. And I know you were concerned because you are perfect and have never done anything wrong <laughs> that you need to quit. But I actually now know things about you I didn't know because we did research on you. And I forgot... What could you possibly not know about me? I didn't know that you turned down... Spam a lot on Broadway I with feel Mike. Like I told you that. Never, or I was not listening. <laughs> you were dealing with your divorce. I still have a post it right above my desk that Jesse, just when he found out I was getting divorced, just wrote, I love you, Julie. Aww. I still have the post it because I felt deeply unlovable in that moment. So then oh, I thank you. God. And I do love you. But I can't believe, well, maybe I haven't told you that story, but you, you know. You never did. But the idea that you would walk away. From Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols and Spamalot, which is a known mm -hmm. triple threat winner, winner, chicken dinner. Right. To do what? Well, I had been workshopping Spelling Bee, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, out of town with a composer that I very much admired, William Fenn, who actually the very first show I saw on Broadway was Falsettos, which was William Fenn's first musical. And I left that theater thinking, if I ever get to work with this guy, my life will be complete. Really? I don't have to do anything else. And it was directed by James Lapine. And years later, this production of Spelling Bee that we workshopped out of town in the Berkshires for literally $100 a week. This production was being workshopped, and I was a part of it, and it was directed by James Lapine and written by William Fenn. And I basically went into debt doing this show out of town. And at the same time, I was in auditions for Spamalot, and they didn't know what Spamalot was going to be at that time. The role that I ended up being offered, it was between me and Tom Aldridge. And Tom Aldridge, he's since passed away, but was an 89-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, Senior gentlemen. And so they weren't sure what the show was going to look like. They knew that they like David Hyde Pierce was going to be in it and Tim Curry. The rest of it, I don't know, we're figuring it out because it was a, a movie or it was basically a, a compilation of a lot of Monty Python sketches into this musical. When I got it, Spelling Bee was coming to New York and I thought, I can't step aside and let all this like blood, sweat and tears that I've put into this part go to someone else. I've literally gone into debt. Mm. I was borrowing money from my parents, but yet there was this big flashy musical that was going to come to Broadway. It's going to go out. It was Mike It was Mike Nichols. And I auditioned for him. I met him and he auditions his cast on the stage of Broadway musicals. I stood on the stage of the Majestic Theater where Phantom of the Opera is playing and he sat in the audience in the darkness and the piano was pushed to the edge of the stage. I was like Fanny Bryce or something. It was like the old style <laughs> musicals. I auditioned for him in this Broadway theater and he cast me and I had to really make a decision whether or not I was going to stay with Spelling Bee or take Spam a lot. And you didn't know what was going to happen with Spelling Bee at that point. I knew it was coming to New York off Broadway, but I also knew that it was really special. It was a really, really special show and it was funny and it was unique and people had seen it out of town in the Berkshires. We literally performed it in a cafeteria in the Berkshires. They lost their minds for it. It was just so funny. And ironically, when it did come to New York, we recreated the cafeteria, <laughs> the cafeteria on stage or, you know, it was like a gymnasium set. But when I made that decision to not do spam a lot, first of all, my agent said, this is a terrible decision. The casting director was like, this is a terrible decision. You're burning bridges with a very, very important person. Yeah. You'll never work with him again. And, you know, this is a bad choice. And I stuck with my gut and I said, I have to do this thing. And Mike Nichols actually ended up calling me on my cell phone. Uh, unknown number, and I answered it in a crate and barrel. I remember that. 
And um, he said, you know, I just heard that you're turning this down. And, and can you explain why? And I told him all the things I just told you. And he said, okay, well, I wish you all the best. That was it. And then fast forward, Spelling Bee ended up being a big hit in New York. Yeah. Transferred to Broadway. Yeah. We're in the same season as Spamalot on Broadway. Our shows are nominated for Tonys against one another. There was a point in Spelling Bee where the cast all runs out into the audience and says our final goodbyes to the audience. And I go to my place where I'm supposed to go at the end of the show, and I'm standing right in front of Mike Nichols, who's <gasps> at the show. I go backstage afterwards. I'm kind of shaking. and like, I'm almost on the brink of tears. Oh, my God, he was here. And at that moment, there's a knock on the door, and I open my dressing room door, and he's standing there with his arms outstretched, and he gives me the biggest hug, and he goes, you can never not trust your instincts. Oh, my You've God. You've made the right decision. I'm so happy for you. And years later, I got to do Spamalot at the Hollywood Bowl. I saw it. In a different part. I did the David Hyde Pierce part. Eric Idle was part of this. This is a full circle moment for all of us. And he was so generous to me. And so, like, all of these people who were telling me I was burning bridges because I was making this gut instinct and this artistic choice were wrong. And to this day, Tara Rubin, who's the casting director of Spamalot, apologizes to me. Because also, that Why, was... Why, did she give you a hard time? She gave me a really hard time about it. Yeah. And Spelling Bee was the show that launched my career here in Hollywood. Mm. The writers of the show called The Class, which was the show I did before Modern Family, saw me in Spelling Bee and cast me from that. It launched everything. And if I had chosen Spamma, I'm sure I would have had a great career because I'm very talented. <laughs> 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 and humble. I'm really humble. Yeah, it's, it's really a great combination. Very humble and talented. But I think about that moment a lot when I'm making really hard choices. How old were you at that time? Mid to late 20s, like 27, 28. How did you do that? When you wanted the thing and people who you looked up to, I presume, told mm -hmm. you that that was stupid. Did you already know how to do that? I guess... I didn't know how to do it. It was like a true leap of faith. It's hard because I'm trying to like really put myself in my shoes back then. But looking back on it, I really feel like I had no fear. I was that confident about it. I don't think I would have been able to do it if I was not confident about it. I felt like this thing that I was a part of was so special and so unique. And I was good in it and doing something that I'd never gotten to do before. Not that that wouldn't have had the during spam lot. It was also unique and wonderful. It just felt really... I don't know. It, it didn't seem scary to me. And that's why I think I went with it because it didn't seem scary. But I mean, must I was have been scared. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. Mostly by the people telling me that I should be scared. Right. And you're in your mid to, you know, somewhere in your 20s and you're making this huge decision. So who were you before as a person, as a performer, before you made that decision? Would you have listened to those people more? Were you somebody who relied on more outside validation? I guess maybe I would have listened to them more. It was my first crossroads in my career. I was an actor who was lucky enough to work enough to keep myself afloat. I babysat a lot in my free time, but I was at a place where for the first time I had two jobs to choose between. And it was a job of financial stability as an actor. I mean, it was not going to make me a ton of money, but I was not going to have to worry for a while and probably critical stability. It was definitely going to move to New York. And then this thing that was just sort of unknown that I'd already been going into debt for, really, truly. So I set that crossroad. I do remember feeling like, and it might be different now, but I felt like I was at a place in my career where I could afford to make that risky choice. And that there was enough things happening afterwards. If I really fucked up and it was like the wrong thing, I would have other opportunities. If the universe is giving me these two amazing things to choose between, it can't possibly be the only time that's going to happen. And it is that thing of finding faith in your future. Because I'm going through the same thing right now, having been off Modern Family for a little bit. I keep thinking, I had that amazing thing. Spelling Bee was such an amazing thing. Like, I've had a handful of really amazing opportunities. I keep having to remind myself that more will come. And, like, I've had to remind my husband specifically because he's not in this business. <laughs> and he has only known me to be an actor on Modern Family. Mm. He met me after our first season of Modern Family, and it was always this thing that I had. It was a steady job that I was like, this is a very rare thing. This is not normal. When we finished, you know, it was one thing to finish, but then it was another thing to finish and then go into this Oof. complete uncertainty for a year and a half. And lockdown, we were, you know, doing our final interviews for Modern Family on Zoom. It was really kind of bizarre and strange and scary. And for him to already be, like, nervous about me not having this stability and then to be in this weird 
even further unstable place was really hard for him. And I had to keep reminding him. And I do talk about this spelling bee spam thing mm-hmm. a lot with him. I have a really great track record. You have to trust me. I'm talented. I'm going to work again. <laughs> did you have that confidence, though, before? Did anything change for you when it panned out? I know Mike Nichols standing there with his arms open saying, you must always trust your gut. That has to be really validating. Yeah, very powerful moment that I think about a lot. Because let's just say he had ghosted you or been rude. Nothing is different about your performance. Nothing is different about your life. But would you have felt differently about that choice not to be part of Spamalot? I would have felt differently about him, but I don't think I would have felt differently. I would have probably been like, thank God I didn't do Spamalot because he's an asshole. But the thing is, he was the nicest, kindest person. And I think I kind of felt that going in. And when people were telling me that he was going to be furious with me and I was going to be burning bridges, that doesn't align with this person that I've been literally spending a few weeks with as I'm auditioning for Spamlot. That doesn't make any sense to me. Who were the people telling you, I mean, are, are we talking about like parents, managers, No, not friends? my parents fortunately don't know enough about this business to like give me any sort of guidance in that respect. I mean, they've given me guidance elsewhere. But it was friends who were envious of this position that I was in. I have several friends who said in hindsight, after the fact, that they don't think that they would have been able to do that. That surprises me a little bit. But casting directors and my agents and the people who got me the jobs were urging me not to make this decision. But I find it really interesting because I've seen you on set for, oh, 11 years. Mm-hmm. And you're wildly talented. You like to make people laugh. But you can also be a people pleaser. Yes. Like, you will slide out the back when confronation's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not your jam. <laughs> no. I'm going to let other people mm-hmm. handle this. Correct. Yet, you put yourself in a position that was... I'm trying to reconcile those two people. The person I know now, you're a fully formed adult actor. You've got a kid, a husband, and you don't want to get all muddy in conflict. And yet there you were at 20 something saying, I'm going to choose the much harder path. I would have been in conflict with the Spelling Bee people who I turned down, who I'd actually Uh. had a longer relationship with. And remember, the first Broadway show I saw was a piece written by that guy directed by the director who's doing Spelling Bee. And to me... That meant so much. I made that promise to myself. If I ever get to work with these people, I have to follow that opportunity. And here I was getting to work with them. And I talk about people pleasing. I wanted to people please them. To me, they were my idols. Mike Nichols, yes, I adored him. But he was unreachable to me. I didn't have any emotional investment in that, you know? Right. Do you think you can ever quit people pleasing? Oh, God. I've gotten better about it, but I haven't fully quit. Do you want to? I don't know. I think that there is something to considering other people's opinions of you is not necessarily a bad thing. I think I can get buried under it at times. I think I I sound like such an addict when I say this, but I feel like I can manage it, man. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't feel like something you want to quit. I want to be able to walk away from things. We went through a few negotiations with Modern Mm. Family and they got very hairy. And those moments were very uncomfortable for me. When it came down to the place, are we going to not go to a table read? That was really hard. Mm. awful. And some of us handled it really well. And some of us, two of them are in this room, did not handle it as well. We did not handle it. (laughs) Yeah, and it's hard. At the same time, I don't think that us not handling it well was a bad thing. I think it just spoke to the type of person we are. But I wouldn't ever apologize for the way I felt. I honestly, in that moment, probably wish I could have stepped away from it a little bit more and not cared. Yes, But that's the people-pleasing. The caring is where it's separating, I mean, for me at least. And that's why I'm always amazed when Chad left Google and he has a line in his book. He said, I could never be a white guy as well as a white guy. Mm. And... That's essentially about pleasing. Yeah. You were you just said I, I spent no, four years. No, I have years, the gene. For, I have the thing. <laughs> you have the. You've got the. You have the. I can't think of what the acronym for it would be like the Praca gene. I love it when you get super smart. No, what is that? I, exactly. I, Only Julie knows what a Praca is. I was thinking the Braca gene is the Braca. gene. Braca is the gene for women's cancers, and I was going to do like a people pleasing gene variation. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, okay. It was a little heady. It didn't land. <laughs> it did not, it did land. not land that one. But that is the thing I'm finding out talking to people is that all of quitting turns out at some point or another to be about managing how you feel about other people liking or disliking you. Yeah. And you, everyone just still likes you. 
not everyone. I have a pretty good track record. I <laughs> Look mean, at your chest, just smiling. <laughs> not ev- no, not everyone likes I'm sure I've pissed people off. I was in a lucky position where, for example, I mean, I'll just speak on Modern Family because that's something we share. If there was conflict on set or if there was something, like I didn't cry wolf a lot. I really like banked the times that I was going to speak my mind that served me well. When I had something I really wanted to discuss, I was heard in a different way because I didn't do that a lot. So was that a tactic? Like, was that conscious? Not conscious. Okay. No, no. I just, there was a lot of times, that's not a hill I want to die on. And like, oh, here's a hill I actually need to climb and maybe die on. And so I banked them. But that is partly because I wanted people pleased and I didn't want to cause conflict. But when I felt it was important enough to at least broach a subject, I would be brave enough to do it. So I have the pleaser thing for Mm -hmm. sure. I want people to like me. I want them to think I'm cute. I want them to think I'm smart. I want them to think I'm funny. I want all of it. I want them to think I'm tall, but it doesn't happen. (laughs) It's not going to work. But (laughs) there's all the people and then I can only please so many of them. And when I shift it, all right, I'm done pleasing this person. I'm kind of shifting over to this person when I'm less available, Mm -hmm. when I don't pick up on the first ring anymore, when I don't show up for the thing. I find, and maybe I'm being sensitive, but I find some of those people get really clawing and really handsy and really angry when it shifts and it's not them anymore. Mm -hmm. Do you have that same experience? I have, yes. If the people mean enough to me, I've had very honest conversations with them about parameters. Mm. Rachel and I have been talking a lot about friendship and how friendship is a relationship and friendships break up Mm -hmm. and they don't get treated the same way as a breakup. You don't sit down and go, this is ending. Give me the keys back. Mm -hmm. I don't want your toothbrush in my house. With friends, we don't set good boundaries. We just sort of distance. Am I reading into it that you said you needed to set some boundaries? Is that part of that? There have been a few friendships that have taken a turn and a lot of it has dealt with the trajectory of my career, and people feeling like I have changed. Well, I should change because this crazy thing has happened to me, and it's impossible for me to say the same, but that's upsetting to you that I'm not the exact same person that I was before. So this is what's happened to me, and this is what I can offer you. I'd love to still have you in my life, but I can't feel bad about not being able to return every single one of your phone calls in a timely manner when I have more people calling me and more obligations and more responsibility. You mean a lot to me and I need you to either meet me halfway or we don't have to do this anymore. Has anyone taken you up on the not do it anymore? No, no one. I mean, there's a few people who I wish had. (laughs) In what ways that you've changed, in what proportion were those ways intentional? I need to make this change to adjust to the way that things are changing around me versus just... This is where inertia is pushing me because everything's new. I feel like it's more the latter. I didn't want to change. I think when you're a people-pleasing person, at least for me, that also comes with being that version of yourself for everyone at all times. The change part is what's actually going to alienate and not please people. So I think it wasn't conscious at all. When I say, would I like to quit people-pleasing? Yes, I would. I still feel like I can manage it well. But what I have allowed myself to dictate change more often. I've been able to recognize when I need to change something, and I've been able to implement what I need to do to make that happen. And I think a lot of that is because I'm a dad now. When you have another person who relies on you, it's like you don't give a shit if you have to change big things. You have to do it for this other person. I really don't care what the adults think. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And sometimes I don't even care what my husband thinks. You know, we have to... (laughs) We can cut that out if you want. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or leave it in. We well, love you, Justin. I, I mean, I bet <laughs> but he Justin knows. And I have lots of conversations about like, what we have to change. And sometimes he doesn't agree with the things I feel like we need to change. Have you had to give up anything? And you have you had to change a lot in your lives? Yeah, it's sort of slow. It's not like all of a sudden you wake up and there's a whole new dossier on how to be a person. Really? Because you guys used to go out a lot. Well, that's one of the things. That's a perfect example. Justin and I are like, I was like, I can't drink like we used to. And Julie knows I can drink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you probably have had to change some things like mm-hmm. that. You can't stay out all night no. if you want to get up in the morning. No, you know, Justin and I really liked our lives as free and easy, childless dudes. Julie and Ty were in the trenches of parenthood. Mm-hmm. And I'd be on a vacation with Justin and wherever we decided to go that week off and Ty would send me these text messages. I am wildly jealous of you. (laughs) I I just need you to hear that. Just know that this is a very rare thing and someday you will not have this. And now I do that to my friend Dan Levy. He's looking at a house, you know, in Europe and he's like, I'm just going to stay at this house for a little while and see if I want to buy it. I'm like, 
I'm going to tell you something that Ty said to me, and I'm just, I'm wildly jealous of you. Because you will not always have that opportunity no. to be able to just take off at the drop of hats. You had to quit some of that. Yeah. But is it a richer experience? Do you feel that you've been changed by becoming a dad? There's things I still really miss. Like, I still desperately miss sleeping in and not having to be on the first thing when I wake up. But I am a richer person. Like, we just took Beckett on a... Uh, on sort of his first vacations. We took him to New York for about two weeks and we went to Mexico with him for five days. And it was great. Every morning he'd wake up in Mexico and we have this really lovely room that with an ocean view. And every day he'd see the ocean, kind of be surprised that it was still there and be like, oh. <laughs> and it just, it warmed my heart. This is really cool. I forgot that the ocean was there. I'm taking that for granted and he isn't, so. Hey, he's reminding yeah, you of like all remind, that yeah. is wonderful, wonderful and fantastic. Yeah. There was a time when you did travel everywhere, mm -hmm. and there was one time when you went to Monaco and you had to receive a award. Yes. Was it Monaco? Yeah. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that you had to give up, and yet I miss hearing those stories. Will you tell Chad that story? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's this really strange film festival or TV festival in Monaco that the Prince of Monaco throws. Mm -hmm. Is it Prince... Prince Albert. Prince Albert, that's right. They're honoring Modern Family, and you have been asked if you would like to go and accept the award. I was new with Justin. I was like, let's go to Europe. We did like a whole European tour and then stopped into Monaco for this film festival. And it's a lot of foreign press there. So I was in an interview. Is this what you're... Oh, you're hell yeah. Okay. I was in an interview, and there was this person who spoke very little English, and he was just trying to get an interview done. And one of the questions was... Ed O'Neill played my dad, our dad on right. TV, and Shelley Long played our mother. And so this interviewer goes, uh, so, uh, so your, your, your father is Al Bundy and your mother is Diane from Cheers. <laughs> Please? <laughs> 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 and I, please, please. And I was like, uh, this sort of a cul-de-sac of a of a question. Now I, I was just like, correct. Yes. 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 Both are true. Because <laughs> we got asked a lot of like a lot of questions that we get asked. You know, what makes a modern family modern? And it was like we had a basically a drinking game around it. Like, oh my god, this question again. I was like, well, I got one that no one's ever going to get. <laughs> but I. I remember when we used to say yes to all of that kind all of, of stuff. stuff. I didn't to the traveling stuff. But I do feel like I watched an evolution in you where you started saying no. No. And having boundaries within your, not a full quit, but a slow quit on the people pleasing. It's so funny because when I was talking to Justin, my husband, about what I was going to talk about on this podcast, I said, maybe I'll talk about how how I stopped saying no to things or how, how I started, started saying, saying no. no to things. He goes, you still say yes to a lot of things. I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about how I don't feel bad about saying no to things anymore. He goes, you feel, you feel bad. bad. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's progress, not perfection. Are you still trying to trend in the direction of saying no and not giving a shit about what people say? I was really good at it when Modern Family was a stable mm. place for me to land. I could say no to things, and I still got this amazing thing that was happening that I still got to do really cool, fun things. I was still going to get invited to certain parties, and I could say no to them, but I'll still get invited the next year. Mm -hmm. Now that that's no longer there, there is this thing like, okay, well, if I say no to that thing, I'm going to be off the list. Mm. And I don't want to be off the list yet. I still don't want to go to that thing tonight. So, <laughs> so what do you do? I mean, it's a lot of picking and choosing. And like, honestly, again, back to being a new dad, some of the times those decisions are made for you. It's like, I don't have the energy to do that. I was reading about you when we were did our research and you talked about working on projects and doing stuff that you didn't want to be doing. Yeah. What do you feel like at the party when you go that you didn't want to go to? I feel terrible about myself. I feel like it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of my energy. You know, I could be spending this quality time with other people that I actually want to be around. I still have a hard time with this. There are certain things that I'll do because it's a nice paycheck. And while I'm doing it, oh, I feel dirty about this. It mm. doesn't feel right. And I've done artistic things that I was like, on paper, I was like, it doesn't feel like the right thing. But I feel like I had to because I needed the money and I was not in a place where I was financially secured to say no to it. Do you find it's harder to make decisions now that you have money? Because when you're starving, you take the freaking job. Yes. And when you have money, suddenly you have to actually have taste or yes. priorities. <laughs> yeah. And I think there is ramifications to doing things that 
you don't want to do. I think people can tell when you're not happy doing something. And I want as much as possible to spend my time doing things that mean something to me or I could stand behind as a person, as a human, as a member of society. So right there, I will plug Welcome to Chechnya. Oh, exactly, yeah. We produced that about being gay in Chechnya. The gay purge in Chechnya, yeah. That was something that Justin and I were really thrilled to produce. And that was something that was a great use of our time and money because we you know, wrote some checks to help get that finished. And that was a no-brainer. I was going to ask if we can talk about some gay stuff. Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> some gay stuff. Can we talk about some gay let's stuff? Let's get down and gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah, you oh, got a got bell. I didn't, right, we didn't cool. explain the bells. But now we will, because we're right. going to talk yeah, about some gay for? stuff. And I ask like that because every time I go somewhere, I think people assume that the thing I want to talk about is black stuff. And sometimes I'm happy to do that, mm-hmm. you know. So I didn't want to just assume that you wanted to talk about gay stuff. I don't have a lot of white friends. When I met Julie and Rachel, I doubled my white friend count. <laughs> now I have four. Before we got started on this, I think before I even came to this house, I sent the bells so that if Julie or I do or say something to the other that feels yucky and feels a little hard to address in Uh the moment, that we can ring the bell and put a tab on it and come back to it or address it then. Get it clear so our relationship can stay intact. And then we're going to do it for the guests, too. Jesse, if we had had these bells in Modern Family, oh my god, no, I would have been belled to death. (laughs) Ring them bells, come on and ring them bells. (laughs) There was a day when we were talking about George Floyd in here, and I referred to him impassionedly, <laughs> nearly in tears, as George Foreman. Oh, God, And Julia. just picked this up and went, <laughs> sorry, sorry. She rang it herself. I, just, I, I wouldn't have uh, rung the bell for that. I, I, need, <laughs> I need a bell in my mouth sometimes. But that's something that has been very helpful to me. Instead of trying to bury stuff and you know circle around to it later, yeah, yeah. just hit the bell if we're right. awful. I'm not fully sure how the bell works, but I'm going to okay. learn. Yeah, well, yeah. he's going to talk about gay stuff, so you might figure it out. Now I'm going to start stuttering and stuff because... Don't. don't and I usually don't. I'm usually in the other side no, of this. you're really you know? chill. So here we go. I had a friend who... I'm already starting with the shit. I have a gay friend. <laughs> I have a friend who I grew up with from six years old. Cub Scouts, basketball teams, church, middle school. Went to college together. He was my college roommate freshman year. Pledged the same fraternity together. I know this dude. Mm -hmm. Have known him my whole life. And I was an athlete and I was in a fraternity. Like, I participated in all the fuckery, man. Like, (laughs) yeah. The fuckery. Yeah. And when we were probably 23, 24 after college, he came out to me. Like, he came out sort of to... Each of the friends from our Waybrack friend group, one at a time. Mm -hmm. We were both in Maryland, which is where we grew up one weekend. And we were on our way to a strip club of all places with our friends. And it was just me and him in the car. He had like asked, hey, can I ride with you? Just the two of us. And I was like, yeah, sure. So On our way to Sniffers Row, there's something I'd (laughs) like to tell you. (laughs) On our way to Fuegos, no less. Uh, And then he shared with me. And then he was basically like, you have this car ride to ask me everything you want to ask me. And we spent three hours driving around, basically, instead of going straight to the place. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he was like a real G about it. I did my best as a 23-year-old. I can't even remember what I said, but I do know I asked him a million questions. Most of those questions were about growing up in the community that I know we both came from, which is pretty homophobic. I felt sad and I felt bad. How could he stomach that from basically before puberty to this age that we were now, which is 23? In, in your story, God, I'm saying so many words, but I'm wrapping it up right now. So Land that plane. Yeah, here it comes. So in your story, I want to make sure I have this right. Yeah. Did your parents pull you out of a role in a musical, in a play, and you were not allowed to play that role? Yeah. Yeah, you have it right. <laughs> it was uh, Bye Bye Birdie. Mm-hmm. I was cast as Albert Peterson, which is mm-hmm. the male lead. Mm. And I had been stealing gay porn. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you don't know this? Um, no. I had been shoplifting gay porn magazines just because... That was the only way you could get it. There was no internet back then. And underwear ads, my mom's red book, you know, uh, <laughs> magazine just weren't cutting it anymore. Calvin Klein ads yeah, yeah. were no longer doing it. <laughs> and so I, I would go in and I would go How to like... How old were you? Sorry. I was a sophomore in high school. Oh, 14. okay. So you're 14, 15. Yeah. Okay. So I'd go into Hastings Books in Albuquerque, New Mexico and put the magazines under my... And I'd tuck it into my pants and I'd put the shirt down. And I did this for... 
for, I don't know, I got, I got a lot of magazines out of that Hastings books. And I would hide them in my room, but then I would like move them around a lot. At one point, I moved them into an alleyway that was behind our house in a box. And my dad saw me taking this box over the wall and coming back without the box. And so, of course, he went to look for it and brought it back and saw that I had these magazines. He didn't know I had stolen them. And so confronted me about that. I was you know, lying. I said I was holding on to some for a friend, for a friend which a friend. I think every kid, that's <laughs> our, of course, it's not how mine. do we all know that that's the answer to like get you out of it? And it's also, I think my dad was like, I don't want to talk about this. Let's just sweep it under the rug. But there was an awareness that I had access to these magazines. And then not too long after that, I don't know what happened, but I stole a magazine that had a sensor on it and I walked out and the alarm went off when I was walking out of the store. And I had a backpack with me. And the, first of all, this kid's obviously not stealing anything. They like looked at my backpack and like, oh, it's nothing in there. It's okay. Go through again. So I went through again. Beep, 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 beeps again. There must be something. Maybe you have something weird on your clothes that maybe set off the alarm. And I just was freaked out so much. I just lifted up my shirt and showed them these magazines that I had tucked into my pants. And they took me into a back room. And this is where it's a little fucked up. They called the cops and... Basically, the cops came and they brought my parents to the store, showed them what I had been stealing. And so they were already kind of aware of these magazines because they caught me with them at the house. And then I was really in trouble because being reprimanded by the law. Yeah. I had to go in front of a judge. <gasps> what? It was a whole thing. Like I had to do community service. Julie, that's what happens when many people in this country steal. Every time I've stolen. <laughs> it's a slap <laughs> on the wrist. <laughs> <laughs> they were setting an example. My parents, as punishment, made me quit the musical. And <sighs> I basically was still in the musical, but I was just in the ensemble. And I sang in the pit. But was the punishment for stealing or for being gay? It's a great question. <laughs> Wait, do you not know that answer? I think it was for stealing. But I think it was convenient, though, that you had stolen a little. Mm -hmm. mm. They could act out a little of the displeasure of the whole situation on... I remember because there was actually maybe one magazine in this group of like eight that I had that was a heterosexual magazine. My mom really hung on to that. She's like... Well, there's a little bit of both. So maybe he's bisexual. I remember hearing them talk about this. What was the hetero mag? Do you remember? Was it like jugs or like? I, <laughs> I just want to know. Like, I don't your remember. mom's like, thank God my son had a hustler. I mean, I was all over the map with these. I mean, there was a black inches in there. Oh. There was. It's that called was black, inches black inches or inches had Asian inches, black inches, no, Latin I inches. I think. And we could look this up. I think it was called Black Inches. Okay. <laughs> all right. So I was like all over the map. So mm -hmm. I think that it was a lot for them to process. Huh. Naturally. I mean, now as a parent, I put myself in their shoes. Yeah, it's obviously upsetting if your child's stealing. But listen, we've come a very long way since then. I would be like, okay, there's obviously a reason why. Now it'd probably be the internet. Why is my kid looking at porn on the internet? They have questions. They want to know about things. I wish that it had been handled differently by them. I wish that it had been an opportunity for us to have a discussion about it. Instead, we didn't talk about it. And I went away to college. College. I'm putting that in quotes because it was drama school in New you York. You did some college. I didn't take college, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I did a, a acting program in New York. But my mom came to visit me and I had a boyfriend at that time that I was in school with. It was sort of a secret thing. Parents are perceptive. She could tell that I was romantically interested in this person. And she basically wrote me a letter after she returned back to Albuquerque saying, I know you're gay. I don't know why we haven't talked about it. But even after like the magazines, I was like, well, shouldn't that have been my coming out? Why do I have to do this again? So yeah. you never had a coming out officially. I guess not. I mean, I remember when we did early press for Modern Family, it was like one of the first things was on The View or something. And someone asked about my sexuality. I talked openly about it. And my sister was like, oh, you came out on The View. I was like, I did? <laughs> <laughs> you never had a time going to Fuegos. I never had that. Had that not happened, when do you think you would have... You would have been ready? Yeah. I know there's no way to know, but do you think you ever would have shared I that with I think eventually parents? after being... New York is a great place, you guys, especially coming from Albuquerque. I mean, it was... <laughs> I lived there. I love New York. I miss it so much. It would have given me a community to feel safe about coming out to my parents. I was already developing that. I had this guy who I was interested in. And I think that's all I needed. In Albuquerque, I didn't have that. I felt like it was just me alone at sea. I knew no one else who was gay. In New York, I was just surrounded by gay people. It's so funny. Justin's niece, Amanda, who's now my niece, when I first, Justin and I first started dating, uh, she's a theater kid. You know, she's a big musical theater actress. Justin's sister 
Amanda's mom was like, how should I, should I tell Amanda? I mean, is she too young? And like, Justin, we're like, she's doing musical theater. All of her friends are gay. <laughs> this is not new to her at they all. They didn't, <laughs> wait a minute. How old was the niece? She's probably like 11 or 12. And should I tell her what? That Justin's gay? That Justin's gay and that we're in a relationship. And that you're getting married? No, it was like way before we got married. It was oh. like when we were just starting to date. That's your not roommate. Justin, my husband. No, right. did yeah, you yeah. say that this they weren't like, when roommates? when are we going to tell the kids exactly, that we're not? Exactly, yeah, 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 we're not roommates, yes. I think I saw that you said, and I think you were joking that you're going to raise your kid gay until... <laughs> until like, they like, declare... I just thought like, that was funny. It's funny as hell. My friend Sarah Salzberg <laughs> actually said that about her son. She really wanted a gay kid. She goes, I'm going to raise him gay and he can decide when he leaves his house if he's straight or not. But under this roof, you're gay. And I just <laughs> thought it was really, really funny. So I was on Ellen and we were talking about books I read to Beckett and someone gave us a book called The like, Heels of the Drag Queen. The Heels of the Drag Queen. Oh, swish, swish, swish. Swish, <laughs> swish, swish, swish. I love um, it. You know, he likes it. It's a fun book and it's colorful. And then I have another book about Broadway divas. ABC's of Broadway divas. Like A is for Angela Lansbury. B is for Bernadette <laughs> Peters. And so C is Ellen for Carol was like, Channing. so you're raising your son gay. And I was like, yeah, I'm raising, you know, I'm going to raise him gay until he decides he's straight. Obviously a joke. And of course, like half the world goes half crazy. Half the world goes crazy. <laughs> But yeah, I, I still think it's pretty funny. I don't. I was like, you know, if we can't have a sense of humor about things. It's really unfortunate, obviously, that you were first coming out to your parents was wrapped in this like tortilla of police indiscretion. Mm-hmm. And you must have felt shame about being yes. busted for shoplifting. But also shame about, yeah. But did you feel shame about being gay? Yeah. Could you separate those two forms of shame or was it just one Big old bag of shame. It sort of felt like this shame about being gay led me to this other thing about being now a a (laughs) hardened criminal. So you were so one was a direct result of the other to you. It was sort of instilled in me because I remember watching a program on TV with my mom, and this was after we had sort of had a discussion about me being gay. And one of the characters was dying of AIDS, and she like got really upset and had to leave the room. For her, it was oh, if people are gay, they're eventually going to get AIDS. These big negative things around being gay were sort of instilled in me. And I also went to Catholic high school, you guys. That was also instilled in me. It was a sin. It was, you know, not meant to be talked about. So when did you get over that shame? You see what I'm doing here. I'm asking when he quit it. As soon as I came to New York, it just took me being in a place, and props to Albuquerque, it's a much more accepting, liberal, inclusive place now. They've done a lot of great work there, and I applaud them. Didn't your dad start or join the P-Flag? I asked him when he was having some relapses and accepting my homosexuality. I asked him, well, why don't you go to a P-Flag meeting, which is a support group for parents. And he loves like group therapy, so he really enjoyed P-Flag. Yes, very he much did. so. He did. He really and did. And they had a local chapter in Albuquerque. They had a local chapter in Albuquerque. It was run by a trans woman. My dad was like, I feel like... I'm going to just name her Betty because I don't remember her actual name. I feel like Betty might have been a man at one point. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, trans people were one sex, then they became right. another. Really speaking very <laughs> <Right>. broad strokes <laughs> And then A and, and then, then I went B. to go meet Betty. Betty when I spoke at my dad's P-Flag meeting. Also, I was like, Betty might not be trans. Betty just might like to wear wigs and dresses. But it didn't matter because it was Betty was helping your dad get to the other side Betty of was his helping my dad. And yes, and I think, and I, I actually don't know how Betty identified. I never had that conversation with her. The fact that my dad was like, I'm not sure, meant a lot to me, actually, because he's like, I don't want to assume anything about anyone. And I thought it was very sweet. sweet. And I found it to be endearing. I think that's really, really sweet. And I love that it was easy for you to get past the shame. I was busted by my parents in 13 or 14. I was eighth grade at a New Year's Eve party and got drunk Mm -hmm. for the first time. I really did not understand that a glass of champagne was hit the floor. Oh, it's just like ginger ale. And then I was like, <laughs> the room's spinning, and I'm making out with some boy, and your mother is here. I was nearly, you know, at vomit levels. And my parents made a joke of it. They could see that I clearly was drunk. They could yeah. see that I made an air. I was like, what's happening? I was in tears. Yeah. They didn't try to shame me. But I felt so much shame about making out with this boy, like sticking my tongue down his mouth while drunk for the first time in front of my mother. And it haunted me forever. And I'm straight. Yeah. Nobody was trying to shame me at all. But I felt a lot of shame. And I don't know how you could just shirk it off so fast. After being in Albuquerque for so long and having to repress it, coming to a place where you're surrounded by acceptance. I was in musical theater school in New York City. So everyone was gay. (laughs) Everyone was gay. Everyone was gay. (laughs) Was it a relief? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Were you aware that there was some mantle that you took off at that moment? I got to be myself. It's where I became who I am now. I learned my sense of humor. I was a pretty serious kid up until then. Like, So who were you before you went to New York, before you got to be out and gay? I was much more serious. You know, when you're constantly living every day, hiding who you are, you know, to be a funny person, you have to be comfortable with who you are. You have to be able to like, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Self-parody, self-effacing? Effacing, thank mm-hmm. you. I knew you'd have the words. I didn't have the courage or the support system to be that. Having people who accepted me for who I was and didn't care, it just opened up everything. What felt different? Did you ever go back to Albuquerque and yeah, so put, put it back on again? A little bit. Yeah, there was a summer when I went back and I worked in Albuquerque for the summer and it felt like I was just doing time until I could get back to the place where I f- was myself again. When did you stop having to code switch, basically? You were code switching between gay and straight. Success in your chosen field changes all of that, Mm -hmm. at least temporarily. I mean, when I started acting and I was doing well, I came home with a lot more confidence. I am successful in my field because I am who I am and people want this version of me. And that's a good thing. I'm getting paid because of that. So that gave me confidence. And did it change the perception of the people in your life, your parents or whoever else you felt shame from? It was still a struggle, but I just didn't care as much what they thought. I think you know this, but even when I was doing Modern Family, I had just done another sitcom as a gay character. And my dad was like, I don't understand why you have to keep playing all these gay parts. Oh, my God. Years later, this is where we are again. I've been working steadily in this industry for now 12 years, and now all of a sudden you're asking me why I'm playing gay. You do know I'm gay. It was this whole conversation about, like, I feel like this role is going to be able to give me a platform to talk about gay rights. It's going to move the needle for gay marriage in this country. Not only am I happy to play this part, but I'm honored, and I feel like I've been gifted this opportunity. And it that was when I told him to go to PFLAG. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah. he's, he's having a relapse. And he did come around, but it was like a tricky bump in the road. And it came so late at the height of my success that I was, I was shocked by it. Wow. If he could go back in time and look at yourself, because you came in here and you said, I've never quit anything. Well, it turns out you quit a lot of things. Mm. It's like the person you are now who seems all settled and together and fearless and comfortable as a married out gay man with a son— There's going to be a time in 20 years when you look back and be like, fuck, why didn't I have the confidence to Mm -hmm. blank, to say no more, to what? What is the thing that you feel like you need to lean into now? Yeah, if we're looking at the trajectory of all of our lives, we look back at the place where in that moment we thought we were doing really great. We were in charge of everything and we were making decisions based on our happiness. And then it's all, you know, hindsight is 2020. It is, but it's also... I actually feel the opposite. I feel like right now there's all these moments when I have to remind myself that this is going to pass and this insecurity and the security of being on a show for 11 years was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But when you leave something, when the tide changes and Justin is freaking out that you're not on, have a regular paycheck and Chad left Google and was living on people's couches. And there's this in-between state where you have to have the confidence. Yeah. But it goes back to that thing, that spelling bee spam lot thing where you have to just put faith in yourself. And I have had to do a lot of that these past few years after Modern Family ended and after we were doing nothing. I had to keep reminding myself that I will be fine. And it's trickier when you have to also remind your loved ones that you're going to be fine and sort of sell them on that idea. And you got to carry them on mm-hmm. on your shoulders a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. It's the joy of marriage. It's the joy of, I think, being in a profession that it's rife with, you know, uncertainty. Well, Jesse, for somebody who says he's never quit anything, <laughs> the only thing you ever really quit truly is like you have this really strong inner voice. And once you gave it a chance to come out, it's been no turning back at all. And your confidence in your talent is gross and fuck you. And, <laughs> <laughs> but you deserve it because uh, you know I love you. But very I'm much. not, I, for example, I've been asked to direct a pilot. <gasps> and what? <laughs> I'm terrified to do something that I'm scared. I'm really scared. I'd be scared too. With the whole crew, like you got to do it with people that we've been around for I 10 years. I got baby steps. I got to baby step in there. I'm scared. And I keep reminding everyone, I was like, just remember, I've never done this before. If you don't want me to do it, I'm totally cool with you like saying, never mind. But I'm excited. I, I want to do it because I'm scared of it. And I think I know I'm going to do a great job. But like, I'm still scared. Oh my God, Jesse, that is so fucking exciting. When I met you, you were... You've always been ridiculously talented, but you were like a fun single guy. 
<laughs> trying out the apps. I think I was on Grinder for like three months, which is just a hookup app. And I thought at the time it was like for dating. I was on there for like wholesome <laughs> reasons. Not. And I was like, well, why is no one's face on there? Like, I don't know what they look like. Did it take you back to inches? Took me back to inches, yeah. <laughs> it took you back to inches. You're like, I remember being in an alley behind me. <laughs> did you jump the wall to go get them and observe them in the way that needed to be observed and then <laughs> jump the wall back. I think I would like go and pick one to bring back to the house. Did you lay them out? And huh, well, what am I thinking? They got very weathered out there in that alleyway. You know, they'd be rained on and they were sort of disintegrating and I would museum pieces with white gloves bringing them back to the house. <laughs> Chad, do you have anything you want to add at all? On the heels of Black Inches. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Where did you put the... <laughs> How did you dispose of them? I think my dad ended up throwing them away. I love your parents. They are lovely. They're amazing your whole people. family is lovely. But you've actually quit a lot. And I'm just amazed at how quickly you can cycle through the, I'm fucking terrified. I'm terrified to direct. I'm terrified that I got arrested for stealing gay porn. I'm terrified that Mike Nichols will never speak to me again. But I know it's going to be okay. Yeah. I would like to bottle that confidence and give it to anybody <laughs> who's trying to quit anything. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. I love you, Chad. Love you too. Julie always tells everyone she loves them. And it's encouraging me to tell people I love them. Chad but is you like, really love me. Oh. She definitely. Like, I would lie down on train tracks for you. I know. You know I have part of Julie's Emmy Award, right? Part of it? Yeah. One of her sons. Which one? Oliver. Oliver broke. broken? The Emmy Award. He broke my first The globe came off of it. It's like a winged lady holding holding a a globe. And it's a wrap present she gave me. The sphere of her Emmy Award. He always said, I want an Emmy. He would joke oh, and say, I want an Emmy. Emmy. And so it had always been broken. I never had it repaired because I thought that it was very human that one day my child broke it. Because that, at the time, was frankly a lot more important to me than a statue. And I never repaired it. Jesse is so goddamn talented, and I'm so glad you know it, because you didn't need the external validation of a statue to tell you. But I gave it to him as a wrap present because I always thought if there was somebody who deserved an Emmy on our cast, it was him. 100%. Oh, You're the greatest. Well, you very sweet. And I think I we can't... all deserved one. But those who won were very deserving. But Jesse, I'm super excited for you directing. What else? Yeah, I'm going to do that Broadway play. Take me out. Take me out. I'm so excited. I'm coming yeah. to see it. Yeah, come. Chad? Chad lives in New York. Yeah, I'll come too. Is it gay stuff? What? Is Take Me Out gay <laughs> stuff? It's about, a gay, <laughs> it's about a gay baseball player who comes out of the closet uh-huh. and the ramifications of that and how it affects his teammates. And I play his business manager. It's a role that Dennis O'Hare originally played on Broadway and won a Tony Award for. Mm. So there's no pressure. There's also a lot of, people might be interested in this, a lot of male nudity in it because a lot of the scenes take place in the locker room. Mm. <laughs> I just, I remember seeing a play way back in the, in the 90s and a bunch of my guy friends were in I had no idea what the play was called or what it was about, but there was one point when they all turn around like in a lineup and it's supposed to be this sort of emotional thing. But <laughs> one of my friends said that they were all like rubbing themselves so they would have Fluffing. sort of a half chub uh-huh. so that when they turned around, they would be, because it was supposed to be this sort of very vulnerable moment of these naked man boys. Uh-huh. But instead you were like, well, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what we're going to be seeing? And the show was called A Chorus Line. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was called Inches, the <laughs> Jesse Tyler Ferguson story. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Jesse. I love you too. And thank you for coming to quit with us. Thank you, Jesse. Yes. Thank you, Chad. <laughs>